so many of the current no-code behemoths were founded at this point of time. Bubble and Webflow were both founded in 2012. Zapier was founded in 2011. And AppSheet, which got acquired by Google in 2021, was also founded in 2012. Hello, No-Code Nation. I'm Ayush, and you're listening to my No-Code Story. And this is not your typical entrepreneurship podcast. Here, you get to listen to real people who are building cool stuff, all without writing a single line of code. This is the future of independent entrepreneurship, and you have a front row seat. Before we get into today's episode, I have a request to make. I hope this podcast has helped you discover new stories, people, and frameworks. If you like what you hear, do me a favor and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. This will help the pod get discovered by more people, and it lets me know that we're on the right track. Now, onto the show. Yeah, and and I think it's it's a good point to then start talking about the early no-code years. So that's kind of how we've described it here. And that's the years of 2010 to 2015. And it's so amazing to think that so many of the current no-code behemoths were founded at this point of time, right? So if you think about Bubble and Webflow, surprisingly, I think there was something going around in the space in 2011, 2012, because I looked it up and Bubble and Webflow were both founded in 2012. Zapier was founded in 2011 and AppSheet, which got acquired by Google in 2021, was also founded in 2012. So it, it must have been something in the air in 2012 that caused something like this. But if you think about that period of time, most of the no-code tools that are really big right now were created about 10 years back. We're mm-hmm. talking in 2022 right now. And just in terms of how much the space has moved in 10 years. It's staggering what you can do in a web browser these days. I mean, think about uh, what the first version of Bubble used to look like. I think it was called like bubble.is or something like that before it got rebranded to bubble.io. And now it's bubble.com. And the first version was like, I I remember picking it up in 2014. So it wasn't even like the first version. And um, (laughs) it was still hard. I mean, you could see all the functionality, but it wasn't easy to pick up. And I think even that has come leaps and bounds now. Yeah, I remember, like, I actually didn't see bubbles. I've seen some, like, images and pictures of the, the, the landing page and things, like, from the early days. But I actually didn't get a hold of it until, like, 2017, 2018, or, like, actually take a look at it. But even since then, it's just, it's changed so much. Like, I remember seeing a lot of zero code. You know, the zero code templates and the zero code, the educational part being yep. developed, but they've all, oh, they really like exponentially did what they did the six years before in the last two to three years easily. Like with the redesign, the, the CSS, the Flexbox layout, I mean, they redesigned their homepage, which definitely was needed. And even, even the builder, right? So for a lot of these tools, the builders have been the main areas of continued development. And I think as things start to get abstracted more and more, what we'll start to see is additional layers getting getting pulled into automated workflows. 
and I, I can only imagine what some of these tools will look like 10 years from now. But I do have a link to the original Bubble demo, which uh, I think is a must watch. It, it, I put it on the episode description for number 36, which was the story of Bubble, and that was part one. So go back and check that out. It's also going to be in the, in the show notes of this one. Thinking about Bubble and what it actually is doing is it, it, it's really one of the only consumer targeted no-code application builder that can build a full SaaS web app all in one. It takes all those all those tech stacks and kind of puts them together in one. But you're you're also seeing the creators now. Also, the education is increasing among creators, and you're seeing the add-ons, the the Chrome uh, plugins for additional functionality or requests or feature support or to fulfill that gap until Webflow gets there. It might be in their timeline, but they're they're prioritizing, I'm sure, what they build. So at the same time, you have a maker come in and make a, make a Chrome extension with a bubble, which is doable, by the way. Yeah, that, that's that's a really good point. I think the ecosystem or the community around these products is really thriving. And oh, yeah. that's what's leading to some of these compounding effects that we see in terms of increased usage, uh, in terms of more efforts than on the development front, more customer feedback. I mean, it's kind of a positive loop. And if, it, if you can get into that loop, I think it, it does some amazing things for your product. For sure. One of the things that you were talking about was also how some of the early users didn't even know that they were talking no code. And do, do you remember when the, the term was first used? I had a conversation earlier today with someone that was saying it was around 2018 that they started <laughs> hearing the term no code getting thrown around. But I, I seem to remember it a little bit earlier than that as well. That is, it's funny because now like I, I, the other day, I think I was thinking about it and I was like, I cannot remember when I actually heard it. I know when it like around, it was a late, it was like late middle to late 2018. I know why I found it. I think the first things I saw were in Google search and it was a tweet. It was a Twitter URL uh, link in Google from either AJ or, and I remember seeing Ben Tossel and then I was searching for HTML stuff. Like I, I was in this stuff started surfacing Yeah, like card, build a website. Cause I was like, I was searching for that. So like I, I, for me, that was my first, you know, time hearing it. And then definitely it led me to Twitter and I didn't even have a Twitter until 2019, 2018, 2019, I had always, I guess, I don't know why I just didn't, but yeah, I think it was definitely AJ Ben Tossel. Then I discovered, uh, Ryan Hoover with product hunt and a Tara Reed for sure. I remember as soon as I joined hashtag no code Twitter in 2018, I remember seeing her a lot with apps without code and her, her videos also of teaching other people. On YouTube, I think, or somewhere like that, where she would actually in person teach people. So, and she was making, she was building businesses with no code before, and she didn't even know what it was called. She just yeah. said, she was just, I think, just saying, Hey, I'm connecting this Google Sheet with this form, and here you go, here's a landing page. Yeah. So, she definitely, and I think some others would agree with me that she's definitely been very valuable in the, the space in the early days of what it would come to be for sure. Yeah, we should, we should definitely try to get her on the pod as well. That'd be cool. 
I was trying to go back to the Internet Archive and look for the earliest reference for the term null code. And obviously, it's, it's not as clean. We're going to have to do like a deep dive into this just to figure out uh, if we can point to a time when the, the term was first used. The really interesting thing that I want to call out, and I don't know in what order this is going to play out, but I spoke to someone for the pod recently, and this is going to be in one of the upcoming episodes here in the next few weeks, that actually owned the trademark for the word no code in the early 2000s. Oh, and then wow. let it expire. And he owned the domain nocode.com and he let it expire. <laughs> I was kind of oh, slapping my forehead, right? Let it expire in 2005, 2006. But uh, I mean, just to think about that, like, uh, I mean, the term no code might be fairly new, but I think the attempt to abstract things has existed for a long time. Did he sell the domain? Did he sell it? He let it expire. Oh, so it got <laughs> taken away from him. It was open. Yeah, his story was uh, he wow. he was trying to run a company that did some of this visual development stuff. And then because of the dot-com bust, uh, a lot of their funding kind of disappeared. And then the company had to shut down. And then he just let the domain expire. Man, that's, that'd be a sad day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure he looks back. He's still doing something in the no-code space. I mean, this, that's why I talked to him. A domain that you, yeah, a domain that you, you know, maybe purchased for $12 20 years ago could be sold for oh, thousands right now, easily. Right. right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Do, do you, do you recall some of the early adopters outside of, I mean, you, you talked about Ben Tossel, but. Yeah, uh, for sure. MakerPad. Yeah. Ben Tossel was just, I was literally, I found then once I created a Twitter and, you know, got into Twitter, that was where I really started learning. That was no code university, you know? It still is, yeah. right? I mean, but because back then it wasn't, I, I think that even just the last four years, there's now hundreds of thousands of people that are trying to learn it and, and understand it. And even in 2018, there was maybe a couple thousand, maybe, you know, but it didn't seem that big to me. It seemed like to me, it seemed like 50 people. It, it just, for, I just, you know, remember being the information was much more narrowed and now it's definitely a little noisy for sure but i remember seeing yeah ben tossel and he was just making he was building MakerPad like like live you know like stacking everything and just i was like man that is okay like screw html now i'll come back later yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll come back later but it's funny because you know all these things which i don't know if we'll get there but like i actually started learning more technical stuff about css html and javascript when I didn't try and I started doing no code, which is weird. It's like a reverse psychology or something like, you know. I think the, the, the thing you're referring to is the fact that you don't really have to worry about implementing that stuff. You just get to understand it. And that layer of abstraction really helps. And then you can actually use some of those constructs. It did, but I I also did learn how to, um, you know, use it because I, I use custom code in, in Webflow, you know, and, and I learned how to do APIs and I could never do it before, before I found no code. I could, I tried it and just could never understand it, you know, like what is an API, uh, you know, get request? What is that? Yeah. You know, like, but it, once I, it's funny that as we learned all these, uh, things around no code and not being technical, it actually helped you become more technical and you started to understand the whole ecosystem around it and the that the under abstracted layers 
of it yeah right absolutely and uh, i mean you talked about sublime text earlier and i i still have sublime text installed on my computer now oh yeah me too i think in the 2016 2015 time frame i was still learning to code i remember i might have mentioned this before but i remember buying this course from a guy out of australia that was basically pushing out he had just quit his day job to teach people how to code because back then that was the big thing like you had code academy come come out you had i think there was code academy man was so like that helped me so much like that was probably actually one of the first things i I was doing to like understand javascript and you know algorithms and syntax and code academy is definitely underrated you know yeah yeah i think uh, i'm still not seeing the levels of funding that i thought would go into something like that go in so it might still be underrated but there are so many individuals that made their name off of teaching people how to code i mean i remember going to these websites like codewithchris.com i remember going to like codeforstartup.com by leo true and i bought one of his courses on how to build an uber clone um but from scratch by learning how to code and I remember after going through like four to five <laughs> classes and each class was about like, it was videos, right? So it's, he's put out these 30, 40 different videos. Each video was about 90 minutes long. And I was like, you know, this is kind of a full-time job, right? At this point, when you're four to five classes in and you're trying to build something on the side, because you're also at the same time trying to build your own app, you're, you're not trying to build an Uber, right? You're trying to learn and then use those constructs. And I wasn't trying to get a developer job. I, I just wanted to build something on the side. And the only way you could do that was if you learned how to code. And I think Leo's yeah. still out there publishing courses. I still get his emails. And I know you know a lot of people are learning how to code <laughs> as a way to find some of these developer jobs that are really lucrative in the market. And I think there's always going to be a market for something like that. But there's also this growing subset of users, like you said, maybe hundreds of thousands of users now that want to use no-code tech as a way to accelerate some of their pet projects. Yeah, um, and this goes back to open, you know, like when, when on the teaching aspect, uh, when you go back to what we were talking about earlier with, you know, some of these, uh, you know, teachers that were teaching, you know, these video courses, this is before Teachable and, Udemy and you know all those days that were you know doing these videos and selling them as courses some of those teachers actually went on to create their uh JavaScript libraries like, like PHP and then you got the the guy that I forgot his name but uh Ruby on Rails he created Ruby on Rails I mean it's still being used right now about you know indie hackers bootstrappers there's also some other uh, instances uh Tailwind you know these new libraries being you know built by these uh people that were teaching others but then they said okay well now i'm going to step it up to you know teach others now and i'm going to create my own library and teach them how to use it which they and they made it open source as well right so they were just extending the ecosystem for sure i mean these pet projects like you said you know people ask what is a side project is this a product or is it a business but i mean yeah there's definitely variances there a lot of hackers definitely you know decide which path they actually want to take you know and i think that comes down to lifestyle too like, you know, are you, how much time do you have? Are you single? Are you, are you married? I mean, you know, and that gets into a whole other discussion. Yeah, I, it's interesting you talk about Ruby on Rails. I think Ruby on Rails came out in 2004. And I know we're going to talk about enterprise no-code tech later, but a lot of enterprise SaaS businesses 
that were built on Ruby on Rails used that as a key differentiator against legacy enterprise systems because this was the new framework and uh, it was so flexible. It allowed you to incorporate so many data sets and David Hansen, who's the who's the founder of Ruby on Rails, also went on to found. There you go, David Hansen. Yeah, that's his name. Yeah, he he also went on to found Basecamp, right? I think he's still leading Basecamp, but it's. Oh yeah, he was a co-founder, and yeah. they obviously have their own suite of products that they that they've created. But it's just interesting that you talk about frameworks because I remember back when, because there are so many decisions that you need to make when you're creating an application. You need to figure out what front-end framework you're going to use, what back-end framework you're going to use. And at the time, this was back in like 2012 to 2015, it felt like every company was coming out with their own framework. Like Google Chrome was gaining ascendancy. Google came out with like the Go programming language at some point. Facebook had their own front-end framework. There were there was this whole debate between, you know, do you use Node.js or AngularJS? Like what, what framework should you go with? And all of that, could that's be true. so yeah. it could be such a mountain to climb for someone that's that just wants to get like their knowledge into an app and get it out to the world yeah um i, I don't you know you just kind of sparked my head. i remember reading something a few years back i i can't really remember too much of the details but it was like some you know companies and some you know developers are, were you know more focused and they used a certain tool set and they used it for a long time and it was still good to use i mean it was like uh i think they were talking about it that you don't need to ha add all these stacks but then you had all these startups and companies creating these new stacks and these new javascript libraries which was making it hard to hire software engineers or something like that they were talking about because uh you know you would see perfectly like good code these these new libraries were you know still buggy or under you know like still being worked out so like you would see it you know just the two i think it was becoming too saturated which now it's obviously been a little bit narrowed now. I think we've got to a point to where you don't see too many, right, libraries being built. I mean, I'm sure there are JavaScript libraries. There's probably, what, 20? It seems like 30. Um, you know, it's definitely slowed down from what I can see. Like, you know, when I go to GitHub or, yeah, you know, when I look at the languages category or whatever. So it's, it's interesting, you know, that, you know, how we got, how we got here. Yeah. And some of that, I mean, is a function of, just the maturity of the ecosystem and that's going to continue to happen right so new frameworks are going to con continue to come along that allow you to take existing technology one step further and that's kind of how how the market evolves but the key point there is how much of that should the average joe really care about right so if someone's just trying to build a simple app obviously performance becomes a challenge at some point but this no-code technology in the 2010 to 2015 timeframe had already started to abstract some of these layers and take care of that ongoing performance improvement over time that you didn't have to worry about if you were just trying to create an app and maybe sell a course or do something with a few thousand users. This was part two of a multi-part series on the history of no-code. If you haven't already checked it out, make sure you listen to part one which I think in the sequence of the podcast is episode number 42. So make sure you check out that one and stay tuned for more in this series. Seth and I will catch you on the next one. All right, that was the show. Thank you for tuning in and I hope you enjoyed it and got a ton out of it. If you did, there are two things you need to do. 
Number one, make sure you subscribe to the show to get notified when a new no-code story drops. And number two, I want to ask you a favor. Who's the one person you know who would absolutely benefit from hearing this story? Text them right now and send them to mynocodestory.com and reference this episode. Maybe they're an entrepreneur. Maybe they can use this episode to level up at their job. Or maybe they're just someone who loves creating new things. Do it. Subscribe and then send them the text. Make a difference. Thanks again and I'll see you on the next one.